Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, everyone. Hello to that lone voice at the back. Um, my name is Phil. Hello to you in Battersea. Um, hello to you here in Balham. Hello to everyone watching online. Uh, my name is Phil, and it is, as ever, a pleasure to continue to lead us in worship this morning through the Word. We are in the third of four teachings in the month of February about the book of Exodus. Um, if this is your first week with us or first sermon in the series, then I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to the first two from Mike and from Karen. Both of them gave really helpful overviews of the whole book, how it's formed, um, particularly how we can start to grapple with reading it as it would have been read um, from the Jewish people that it's written about and how we might go about grappling with some of the difficult elements, particularly, which will continue that theme this morning. My only complaint to you, Karen, and you know this is coming because I told you it was, that please don't ever compare the beauty of the Bible with the horror of the Star Wars prequel trilogy. (laughs) I mean, I don't like to use the word heresy too often, but you got close. But this morning, um, they've passed on the baton wonderfully from me, from those two really strong, excellent teachings. And we're going to look at the next phase um, of this story in Exodus. So to recap the story very briefly, um, God has chosen, God's chosen people um, are being oppressed in Egypt by a powerful, unjust uh, pharaoh. And God reveals himself and who he is to Moses and calls Moses to lead his salvation plan. Through Moses, God does battle with Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt through demonstrations of power and authority. But Pharaoh will not relent and will not let justice prevail and his people leave. Just to try and capture maybe some of the drama of this moment in the story, um, I've written it by means of a haiku. (laughs) And just just to be clear, this is not a comedy haiku. So, um, yeah, I thought, I'm going to say this and everyone's going to expect a punchline. There isn't actually a punchline this time. Um, so I'll just to turn capture the drama, I've written it like this. People cried, God heard. His power and his name made known. Pharaoh grips tighter. So that's the kind of poignancy, the drama of where we are in this story. And we're going to read now in chapter 11 and 12 at this critical point. And the question really for this morning is this. Who is going to win this struggle for supremacy? Will it be Yahweh, the God of the Jews, or will it be Pharaoh and the so-called gods of Egypt? And how will the battle be won? Those are our questions. So if you have a Bible, please do open them to Exodus chapter 11. Um, I'm going to read through various parts of uh, chapters 11 and 12. They'll come up on the screen. But I'll give you a moment if you'd like to follow along in your own Bibles. Exodus is the second book at the very beginning. So if we start from um, the very start of chapter 11, it says this. 
Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and Egypt. After that, he'll let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. So Moses then said to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord said. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave who is at the handmill and the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than ever has been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And then into chapter 12, as the story continues, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month will be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, each person is to take a lamb for their family, one for each household. Take care of the lamb until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community must gather to slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames and of the houses where they eat the lambs. That night, same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over a fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down the firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This day you are to commemorate, for the generations to come shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting spiritual practice. And then we close up in verse 29 towards the end of chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner in the dungeon, and the firstborn of the livestock as well. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flock and your herds and go and also bless me. I always get the easy passages. (laughs) But more seriously... In all my time as part of our teaching team, I don't think we've had, as a teaching team, more grappling with how we teach this Exodus story well. Um, We've been sharing commentaries and and sermons and podcasts and the rest of it, trying to help each other be faithful to the word and yet not dodge some of the hard, difficult parts. And I think part of the reason we wanted to do that is hopefully to model something as well, that when some of these difficult passages are, and this is undoubtedly a difficult passage we're going to have to look at, that there might be some idea that the idea is um, there's some hope to engage with them, to grapple with them, to fight with them, to question them, to look at how people can understand these rather than simply run away from them. And there will be some resources in the small group that we hope will help you continue with that journey. But this morning, let me share with you quite humbly with what I have shared about how we might understand what's going on in this part of Exodus. The first part will be what I've learned about the significance of the blood of the lamb in this story as we understand this redemptive act. And the second will be what I've learned and understand about the significance of the Passover meal that is explained in this passage as well. 
And I offer these two to hopefully awake our souls to the significance of this word redemption that maybe many of us take for granted. So let's look at the significance of the blood. Two observations, um, as I said, that I have learned, which I think really help us understand this. The first one being the substance of the blood. Now, those of us, um, which is not all of us, some of us who've grown up around the church, potentially, um, we talk about blood quite a lot in church. And if you think about it and take a step back, it's a little weird. I don't know many other cultures, certainly in the West, that talk so much about blood. The only one I could think of is people who do twilight marathons every few months and debate if they're Team Jacob or Team Edward. And it's strange because the culture we live in, I think blood mainly represents death, killing, or evil. It's a very negative connotation. But in the biblical culture, blood didn't have that same connotation. In fact, it was completely the polar opposite. Um, Here's a quote on the screen by Old Testament guru Terence Fretheim um, speaking about this element. And he said, it's not irrelevant that the substance used was blood. The sign was not simply a marker. In the blood was life. It is the vitality of living. And those biblical references are other biblical mandates to the blood being symbolic for life. The blood is a sign of life. The blood was a life of creation given for the people who lived in those marked houses. It was a life given that provides the life for Israel. So for the people at the time, and indeed a lot of the cultures around Israel at the time, blood was precious, blood was powerful, and blood was life. In fact, there was one area of our modern-day lives where I think this positive sense of blood has been retained. Read this on the screen from the NHS website. Giving blood saves lives. The blood you give is a lifeline in an emergency for people who need long-term treatments. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I thought that's kind of the gospel NHS translation. (laughs) So the helpful first detail in making sense of what's happening at the time is that there's a significance to the blood. It's not about death. Primarily, it's about life. It's about power. And the second thing is about the timing of the blood. And fair warning, um, this one is going to get heavy. But I think there's one element of the story that many of us uh, continue to and will be grappling with, um, especially maybe in light of certain things recently, which is the death of the firstborns. So how can we make sense of this and around the timing of the blood? So if we look at verse 6, verse 8, verse 12, and verse 31, they all tell us that all these events, the meal, the departure... The death of the firstborn, they all happen at a certain time. They all happen at night. And therefore, when we're exploring these kind of passages, we might want to say, why at night? There is no other act of power in this story that happens at night. This is the only one. And in fact, wouldn't it be quite annoying to happen at night? Because then the Israelites would have to leave at night. And I think it would have been very practically annoying. But from what I've studied and understood, it's deeply significant And it's because of this. The nighttime represents an ultimate show of power and sovereignty by God. At night, 
He was removing creation from the Egyptians. So let me unpack this, particularly what I've uh, helped been learned by, by Tim Mackey, who's head theologian and founder, or co-founder of the Bible Project. And he explains and gives examples that throughout the Bible, darkness represents the absence of God. And in particular, it's the ultimate pre-creation state. So we see in Genesis 1, right at the start of the Bible, the creation account, before God's first intervention, it says the earth is formless and dark. That was the state of pre-creation. And even in Exodus itself, before the Jews, as we move on slightly in the story later on, um, before they cross the Red Sea, they actually camp out before they cross. And they camp in light. And the pursuing Egyptian army who are coming after them camp in darkness. So biblically speaking, darkness is a powerful symbol of the absence of God's creative goodness. So what's happening here in this point in the Exodus story, this culmination point, this battle between God and Pharaoh, both theologically, literally and spiritually between good and evil, has reached its ultimate climax. And the one true God, Yahweh, the creator God, is showing his full power over creation. In the darkness, he is making one final judgment on Pharaoh and the so-called gods and powers of oppression and justice. He is giving them what they want. He is removing his goodness of creation from them. And the account tells us this looks like the death of the firstborn. But not only Egyptian children, if you look at it, it says it's the animals as well, which again gives us the hint that something bigger is going on here. The death of the firstborn, the animals and humans, tells us the reality and the symbolism of this event is so cosmic in proportion. The strength of Pharaoh was in reality so strong, his continued insistence on his own power, that it came down to, it required this major act of uncreation to bring about God's redemption and salvation. This is not a symbol of how God views children. This is actually a symbol of how important and powerful children are as a symbol of creation. And I share this not to try and explain it away or to make us feel comfortable with the reality of this. I certainly do not feel comfortable with it still. But what it's done for me and I offer to you is it's raised the stakes of what actually happened in this moment. This is not a children's story. This is an incredibly powerful cosmic act of warfare. So I think as an interim point, I think we need to take hold of that the Passover event was a profoundly powerful, cosmic, intense act of life-giving redemption by God on behalf of his people. And I offer you to offer you this this morning, that perhaps it ought to unsettle us as much as it should comfort us. I wonder how that idea feels to you. So what might this mean for us today as Christians in February of 2022? Quite simply, it means everything. 
And how do I know this? Because during the Passover, it was during the Passover festival, this festival that was mandated at this time, that Jesus began his final days of moving to the cross. Some of you um, will know the phrase, the Last Supper, as a significant moment when Jesus explained some of the purpose of his death to his disciples and his followers. And he did it over a meal. It wasn't just any old meal. It was the Passover meal. It was this exact same meal that was instructed at this event we've just read about. So I'm going to read now um, the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 26. Um, a gospel that Matthew wrote particularly to the Jewish people at the time to understand and explain and make the case that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. I've done this before. I'm also going to read it prayerfully with Jesus. So I'll invite you to close your eyes if you like. On the first day of the Passover festival, your disciples came to you and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? You replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. While you and your disciples were eating, you took the bread. And when you had given thanks, you broke it and you gave it to your disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then you took the cup, and when you had given thanks, you gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Now, all of the components of that meal, the bread and the wine, were significant parts of how the Passover meal had continued to be done every single year as explained and asked of Moses in that story of Exodus. But again, Tim Mackey um, at the Bible Project points out that intentionally or otherwise, Matthew leaves out one key part of that meal from Jesus' words. I wonder if you can recall what's missing from that Passover account. The lamb. Because in this moment, Jesus is fully aligning himself with that same God, with that same redemptive power and purpose, with that same cosmic battle being waged in Exodus over sin and evil. Only this time, the life being offered was God's own. Jesus himself, the firstborn over all of creation. Jesus' voluntary journey to the cross, where his life was given for our redemption and our forgiveness, wasn't God's first major act of redemption. It didn't come out of nowhere. It was a continuation and the centerpiece of a Bible-long, history-long story of creation for redemption and recreation that you and I are all part of continue and continue to be part of. And as if we didn't get the point yet, when Jesus died on a cross, when he died, immediately afterwards, there was a three-hour period of something. I know some of you will know that answer. When Jesus immediately died on the cross, there was a three-hour period of darkness. Darkness, uncreation, before redemption and resurrection. 
I wonder if those words are now starting to stir our souls a little more. But there is one more thing I love in this text I wanted to share with you this morning to maybe help us understand why we can struggle to experience and remember the significance and the power of this redemption. And that's the significance, I think, of God instructing a meal as a way to remember and relive what was going on. There is this beautiful pattern in the Exodus story that I want to show you that I've seen elsewhere in Scripture. And I want to offer it to you this morning as a way of us taking hold of some of these truths and applying them to our discipleship today. Let me enact what I mean with a little, not little, that's very patronising, with a helper. (laughs) I don't know, I just, I was like Santa's little helper. And I was like, A, why am I Santa? And B, why is Mike an elf? So... So we have in this story, this is why I have to do it from memory, but I think that's fine. We have in this story um, a meal. We have a meal mandated. Um, in that story read of the, the account of Exodus, that God says, actually, your whole year is going to start with this meal. And this meal will be a, me- a memory of what's about to happen. And what's really interesting to me is that that explanation, what, where that comes in the account, happens before they've actually moved out of Egypt. It comes before the act of redemption actually happens. And that's not the only place I've seen this model in the scriptures. There is a second meal, which we've already (laughs) talked about. Thank you. We've talked about a second meal, which was the Last Supper. And you'll see again, when Jesus said those words that we read out, The disciples did not know what he meant. They did not know, as we know from the rest of the gospel accounts, they didn't understand what he was about to do on the cross. They didn't even know he was about to go and die. But he was saying at that point beforehand, do this in remembrance of me. And what's really interesting about this, um, to me anyway, there's two sort of ways of explaining what I think is happening here between the explanation of what's going to happen and then the gap and the explanation then the gap. The first one um, comes from a a theologian I read studying this called Carmen Joy Imes. And she talks about how actually in the Exodus story, after that, that redemptive act that has them set free by Pharaoh, they don't immediately go to the promised land. They go into this in between phase, a phrase she used called liminal space. They are no longer in captivity, but they have not yet got the full fruits of their freedom. They are in the in-between space. And she says, therefore, the reason God asks them or invites them to do this every year is to remember. Is to remember who God is, to remember who they are, to remember the power of their creator God. And I think you will feel the same thing when it comes to Jesus. He says this because he knows they're about to go into, in the short term, incredible confusion after he dies. And he's saying, do this and remember it's me so you can hold on to what I did and why I did it in those difficult times to come ahead. So I think the first reason is a remembrance. And the second reason, um, to again use another quote from my friend Terence, who I met in a book, who, (laughs) that's where you find your best friends. Um, 
<laughs> um, he says this, speaking again of the particular Passover meal. He says, when Israel ate the Passover, each generation, it was not as if nothing really happened in the ritual or that it was simply a recollection of, an, of the original event. He says the reenactment is as much a salvation event as the original. The saving power of the original event is made available anew to the present community by God's redeeming activity within the context of worship. In other words, when they're in the space in between, the now and the not quite yet, this is also a powerful act of continual redemption, continual transformation that they can source from and be encouraged by. So I'm going to invite the worship bands at Battersea and at Balaam to come up. But I have one final invite for us. Because, as has magically appeared, there is a third meal. <laughs> there is a third meal. Um, in Revelation 19... The disciple John, when he sees a vision of the new heavens and new earth, amongst the images that he sees, he sees a wedding feast between the church and the Lamb, which is Jesus. And we know we live, just like the disciples, we live between a time where Jesus, the kingdom has broken in in his life, his death and his resurrection, and yet we're not yet at full consummation. We have the kingdom now and we have the tension of the kingdom not yet. So we have this spiritual practice that we call communion. Some people call it the Eucharist. And we're going to take communion together in our sights in a moment. But as we do that, I'd invite you to think about communion afresh. As you think about Jesus on the cross, you may want to think about the cosmic significance. The echo of what happened at that powerful and unsettling event in the Passover. You may want to feel again the significance of the cost God paid to redeem us, to forgive us. But also how God wants us therefore to be transformed to bring the kingdom in our own lives, to live in that tension of the now and the not yet, and to take part in his redemptive purpose for our generation. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.